three-part sermon today. Um, you know, when I went through and drafted this out, I had it mainly in, uh, I was thinking about it in the way that the text is broken down. Our text this morning is going to be um, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 through 18. So 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 through 18, and really the way it's broken down is uh, there's, a, there's a command, there's five questions, and then there's a, a, a place where, where Paul is really, he's not quoting anything verbatim, but he's taking a bunch of ideas from Scripture and putting those down, saying this is what God has said to us in our, in our Bible. And so you could maybe break the sermon down into that way. The way I'm going to break this sermon down today is just exposition of the text, application, and appeal. So I, it's, I did the same thing last week where the outline was weak. And I, uh, but I, I think sometimes uh, if we can come to the text and just understand what it means, then hopefully the next time you come to the text, you'll understand what it means. And I don't know that you need three points in a poem every week, but I try to provide that. I just... Uh, haven't for the last two weeks. So I was thinking as we started this, and Dale, I sent you an email. Did you got it? Okay. I was thinking as we started this um, about all the weird, the weird things that Christians say. You know, if you didn't grow up in the church, and I know we've got some people that didn't grow up in the church. If you didn't grow up in the church and you came to a church and you heard people talking about, you know, during the prayer time, someone raises their hand, it's like, I have an unspoken, you know? We know what that means, right? We, we know they're, they're saying, I've got a prayer request, but I don't want to say it out loud. I don't want to gossip or reveal too much information. But that's one of those weird things, you know. We pray for traveling mercies. What is that? You know, is that like a, mer- a mercy on a train that goes somewhere? No, we were praying for people that are traveling, that God would have mercy on them. But we have all these things, right? We just talk about having sweet times of fellowship. You know, people that don't go to church don't talk like that, right? Like when they come in here, we, we, seem a little, we can seem a little bit weird, what do we call that kind of speak? Do y'all know? Christianese. Yeah, can you speak Christianese? And you kind of, when you come to church, you got to start learning what are all these, what are they talking about? Well, there's an, a phrase that we throw around that those of us that are growing up in the church, those of us believers, studied our Bible, there's a phrase that's kind of a weird phrase that if you didn't have context would probably really sound nutty. Is when we say something like this hey, make sure you're not being unequally yoked. That would be really a strange phrase just to hear if you didn't have context. And so today, but, but it's interesting that this verse that tells you, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, to not be unequally, is that bug going to sting me? That is a stinging bug. <laughs> Fly away, little buggy. <laughs> well, if he gets near me, someone shoot it. All right. <laughs> <clears throat> So anyway, um, so there's a, there is a, of course, you know, that's what they used to make fun of me because I, d- I didn't have a gun, but I said, you know, you can take people down with wasp spray. Well, this is when I really need it. Uh, but that verse says, don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And it's interesting that that is actually a verse that most of us know. Maybe it's because it is kind of an unusual phrase but don't be unequally yoked is what it says there. If you'll look in your text, uh, in 2 Corinthians, I've got to move. I'm I'm in 1 Corinthians. That's not good. We've already preached through that one. Do not be unequally yoked 
with unbelievers. For what partnership does righteousness have with lawlessness? Or fellowship? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? So we look there at verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked. What does that mean? Well, just to break it down for kids that don't maybe know, uh, a yoke is an instrument that uh, if you're trying to plow a field and you've got some animals, uh, a yoke is a piece of a farm equipment that's been around since the most ancient of times. We have statues and depictions, even from ancient Egypt and so on, of, of uh, not women, of uh, animals uh, pulling. I don't know why I said that. That's not good, though, whatever. <laughs> the women do all the work. We know it. Okay. Uh, okay, I'm just going to stop now. Let's have the invitation. <laughs> so it allows an animal to pull a plow for planting crops. And so two animals can partner together. We usually think of oxen, and they put their neck in this wooden implement, and they are able to pull a plow. Now, this says, don't be unequally yoked, and I gave Dale a picture. Can you put that picture up there, Obelie? Y'all have it? Okay. So this says, don't be unequally yoked, and this is what it's meaning, is that put two oxen in there, but don't put, uh, don't put a, an ox and a donkey in the plow, because when you put the weaker and different a temperament, temperamented animal in the yoke with the oxen, it's eventually going to do great damage either to the donkey or the oxen. Someone's going to get hurt, and you're not going to get the field plowed. So that's, you can take the picture off there, but that's a yoke. You can see that wooden implement that, that their neck's in there. And so where does this idea come from where Paul would say, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers? Well, let's get the context, and then we'll work through it. So at this part of the book, really ver- chapters 3 through 7 of this letter we've been reading, so Paul's writing a letter to a, a church in Corinth, and Corinth is just one of these really important churches. If you thought of the most important cities in the United States, what do we n- normally think they are? McGargle, <laughs> Winthorst, no. What do we normally think? We'd say New York. Where do they make the culture? New York, Los Angeles, and only Texas, right? No. Well, we think of these cities that are just, you know, Paris and London and these famous cities in the world. Well, Corinth was one of those cities. Corinth was a strategic city for the gospel, that if we had a strong church in Corinth, basically all the travel and all the information and all the products and everything came through there through the Isthmus of Corinth. So it was a major uh, information, uh, cultural uh, trade, anything you can imagine It was a very important city. And what had happened is Paul had gone there, strategically planted a church, and then false teachers had come into that church, and they were leading the people astray, saying, don't listen to this guy. If this guy really was from God, he wouldn't be in prison. He wouldn't be suffering. He wouldn't be stoned. He would be being stoned and beaten, okay? Uh, and, And here they were. Uh, uh, rejecting the apostle Paul. And so in chapters 3 through 7, even though he's won back the hearts of many of them, they're still dealing with the false teaching. And, he's, and they're still dealing with rebels in the church that are, that are basically rejecting his apostolic authority. You know there's no such thing as an apostle anymore. Apostles were people who knew Jesus, had an encounter with Jesus like the apostle Paul, who are closely, or we'd say even could be closely associated with another apostle. Now, you'll find some denominations where they'll call somebody an apostle these days, 
But theologically, that's not possible. You don't have apostles anymore because nobody's had that experience and encounter with Jesus Christ where they could write Scripture or preserve it for us, okay? So these apostles were a rare breed. There weren't more than 20 or so of them. And if, if that's, a, that's a wide estimation of how many apostles you might have that, could, that, would, that would be able to write down Scripture to be preserved for us, okay? So the apostles in, in this uh, age had authority to tell you and to establish churches and tell them what God's Word was, okay? So that was the, that was the apostolic authority that Paul had, and they were rejecting it. So he's trying to work through and bring them back. Uh, don't be partnered up with false teachers that peddle a false gospel is the message that Paul is giving in this, this chapter and then this passage that we're working through. Don't be partnered up with false teachers that peddle a false gospel. All right, so we, this is like the Mississippi Squirrel Revival. Uh, <clears throat> Randy, can you save us? That was one of God's little creatures, Randy. <laughs> Let's hear it. <laughs> I started seeing weird looks on people's faces, and I thought, is my fly down? Uh, <laughs> it was the wasp that went down, actually, there. Yellow jacket. You know, I think that was a yellow jacket, wasn't it? I'm, I, I am, I, if I get stung by a yellow jacket... You guys think I've got a big head now. <laughs> Swell up. I've, I'm allergic to those. I think that's the only thing I've ever had an allergic reaction to uh, was, was uh, yellow jacket. So let's, let's refocus. Again, don't pay attention to the lamps. Focus in on here. Uh, the, uh, the, the church was partnering up with false teachers who peddled the false gospel. He said, don't do that. So that's what the, that's what the actual c- context and meaning of it is. We can make, so you see, uh, let me explain this about Scripture to you. Some people read the Bible, and then they'll, they'll stop, they'll say it out loud, read a verse, and they'll say, okay, what does that mean to y'all? That's not the way you should read the Bible. You realize that, right? Uh, we read the Bible because the Bible means a thing. Like, it, it has a meaning that, it, that has nothing to do with you, okay? This was not actually written to you. It doesn't say the epistle to the Alneites. This was written to the Corinthians. Is that what we're called? Are we Alneites? Alneans? I don't know what we are. Alneites, yeah. This is not the epistle to Alneites. But, we, but it's been given that we can read it. And so we've kind of got to go through some steps. That's what we do in the sermon, right? We get from, it was written to these guys for this purpose, and here's the meaning of it. And then how can we draw application to our life in this time where we are right now? So it's not a good question to say, what does this scripture mean to you? You start off and you say, what does this scripture mean? And then we say, and how now that we understand the meaning in light of the cross, in light of what Jesus has done, in light of our being Christians, in light of us being here at a church as well and only, how do we apply these truths, these principles from the scripture? It's written, how do we apply these things to our life? So when I say we're going to do exposition and application, I'm going to tell you what the passage means, and then we'll talk about the many ways that this passage is applied to our lives. But let's understand, this is, see, I thought this passage was about dating in the 80s and 90s. 
Because that's the only context I'd ever heard it preached in. Don't be unequally yoked had to do with your dating. That's not what it really meant, was it? It was far worse. These people had brought in false teachers who were leading them to worship idols. And they had partnered up with idol-worshiping pastors, preachers, who appeared as though they were messengers of light, but they were actually messengers of darkness. And he says, don't partner up with the messenger of darkness. Where does he get this word picture of the yoke? Deuteronomy chapter 22, 9 through 11. Listen to this uh, command that Moses gave the people before they went into the promised land, giving this to the second generation. Deuteronomy means the second telling. Why did he have to tell it all twice? What happened to the first generation? They died in the wilderness. So he had to tell it all again to their children. And he said, you shall not sow your vineyard with two kinds of seed, lest the whole yield be forfeited. The crop that you've sown and the yield for the vineyard. Verse 10, you shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. Verse 11, you shall not wear cloth of wool and linen mixed together. Have y'all ever heard those verses used before? Okay, where do we normally see that verse used, Scott? Verse, especially verse 11 about the mixing of, of fabrics. Who usually brings that up? I know he's argued with a lot of guys on the internet. So it's normally an unbeliever, and, and you're trying to make an argument. They say, you don't even follow your own Bible. Are you wearing a cotton polyester blend? And they'll try to throw the conversation off. That's an uninformed, usually an uninformed uh, someone, atheist, agnostic, someone that has an, an antagonistic view toward Christianity, will bring up these verses about not mixing seed, not mixing fabrics, or the, the source of the fabric, or not mixing the, 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 the animals in, in the work in the field. And what they're trying to do is say, well, you're telling me that I have to do this and I have to do this, and you're not even following your own Bible. That's, that's the argument that they've normally made to me. And of course, that is ignorant of the way to... Under so, you know, when you argue with people, the way to get respect when you argue is if you know their case better than they know their case. So that's not really understanding the case, right? Because in Israel, uh, they had the Torah... And there were three different kinds of laws. There was civil laws because there was a nation of Israel. There were ceremonial laws that talked about temple worship. And then there's moral laws. Well, in the new covenant, the ceremonial and the civic laws go away. They're abolished. There's no nation of Christianity. Okay, that may come as a shock to some of you. But <laughs> this is for every tongue, every tribe, and every nation can be a part of the new covenant. And there's no more worship in the temple or ceremonial law. You know who the temple is now? We are. We're the temple. Okay, the, the temple, the church is not this beautiful building. The church is the beautiful lives that are being remade by the Holy Spirit. Those are the things that will change people and that people want to see. But what never changes is the moral law. The moral law, the Ten Commandments, the things that are in there that, are, that address morality. Because why does that never change? Why will the moral law never be abandoned? Because right and wrong have never changed. And in the moral law, we have these commands that point us to the character of God. The reason you're told not to lie and bear false witness is because we worship a God of truth. 
These commands tell us what our God is like, and he teaches us the best and most righteous way to live. But the ceremonial laws had a meaning. We can still look back to those ceremonial laws. We can look to this passage, Deuteronomy chapter 22, verses 9 through 11, and when an atheist or an agnostic or someone that's antagonistic to Christianity throws that in your face and says, you're a hypocrite because you're wearing cotton and polyester, you say, well, you're, you're completely misunderstanding the point of that text. The point of that text for us now is to understand that we serve a God of purity, when he brought them into the, to the land of Canaan, there were other, other tribes there. There were other people there. And he said, you're going to go in there and you're going to be completely distinct. It's not going to be like two different uh, peoples woven together. It's going to be this one separate from this one. There's not going to be two seeds put in there. It's this one and this one. It's not going to be an ox and a donkey. It's going to be two oxen or two donkey. But it's going to be pure. There's a purity that we have to understand God has called us to because the church should be pure, not defiled by the world. And so we are called to pull away, and, and we should say our Corinthian brothers and sisters were being called specifically to pull away from those false teachers because those false teachers were having them worship created things, not the creator. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And so Christians for 2,000 years have wrestled with what does this mean? How do I maintain this purity? And people have t tried different things. Uh, Y'all have heard of monks and nuns. How do they withdraw? They withdraw completely. And the monks will say, let's, let's just withdraw ourselves from all this evil, and what we'll do is we'll go build us a place, a monastery up on this mountain, and we'll have church three times a day, and we'll make sure that we don't even sin, we won't even talk. And we'll just make candles and yogurt and whatever they do, and plow and, and work in the fields and cook dinner, and that'll be our life to make sure that we are, are, are separated from the world. <clears throat> then you had the, those in England who were even called the separatists. And they were separating from the Church of England and, and from really the culture, and they were different. We have people called the Puritans, and their idea was to do the same thing, to be pure before God. We had the pilgrims. Think about what our forefathers in this nation did. They actually tried to find a place they could go to avoid the corruption. They said, Let's go to the, there's not really a place we could go like that now on the planet, but back then, there was a place they could go. They could go to Plymouth. And they could start a colony there, and the idea was to separate from the corruption of the world. So people have tried to figure out, how, what does it mean to not be unequally yoked with unbelievers? Should there be a First Baptist Church of Las Vegas? Should we have a church in the middle of Sin City? I think so. <laughs> I think that's a really good idea. So we know it doesn't mean all that, complete pulling away and separation. Of course, the separatists and Puritans didn't teach that, but it's interesting that they used that, that language. As Zoe quoted from Psalm 1, I also have that in my sermon. Blessed is the man who, as she told us, walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. What are we rhyming there? What is he saying? He's saying, happy is the man. Here's the man who pleases the Lord who doesn't delight in the wickedness, but his delight 
is in the law of the Lord on which he meditates day and night, thinking about the one that he truly loves. doesn't mean that we leave the planet, though as uh, Larry Norman said in his song, we have to understand that we're only visiting this planet. Okay, this is not our home. We are in the world, but we're not of the world. We don't leave the planet, but we sure are going to look like we don't belong here. Maybe we can think of an illustration like in a hospital. I know Verma works in a hospital, and several of you may, may work in the healthcare field. And think about every day those doctors and nurses that go into those hospitals full of sick people. Do they have contact with the sick people? Yes, but their goal, and they probably have things, I've always thought they have things that they're doing. Before perhaps they'll do an examination, they may put a mask on, they may put gloves on. They'll do things where they can have contact but not have contamination. And so that's what we're really aiming at. We're really aiming for to be in the world, to be uh, uh, interacting with people that are very different than we are. And we want to have contact with people that are not like us. We want to care and love people that are not. We can have deep friendships even with people that don't know Jesus, but we cannot be influenced or accept their standards. That's a very hard thing for the world to understand. It's a very hard thing for Christians to understand that we're called to be different. And so what Christians say is, well, we're not really sure that this Second Corinthian book was really written by Paul. There's no evidence for that. And usually whenever people question the authorship of a book in the Bible, you know what they're really questioning? The content. They don't like what it says, so they say that's not really the Word of God. <clears throat> All right? But we have a standard. We, so, we, so think about how strange it is to be a Christian. That it, on one hand, we are to be the most loving, kind, compassionate, caring people that anyone's ever met. But on the other hand, we have a standard. So while we love and accept and, and care in one way, there's another sense in which we say we, we, don't, we don't condone that uh, sinfulness because we're not here trying to please people. We're here to please the Lord. And that's a fine line to walk, isn't it? I was trying to think of times where I've had a difficult uh, time walking that line or where it's been difficult. And well, I remember when I practiced law, I've told probably this in my Sunday school class before, but, you know, I, you go into court and the lawyers are all talking. We've got cases to settle. We've got things to do. And one of the weird things uh, I, that, that is not true of every lawyer, of course, this, that would be a terrible way to generalize, but th there was in the courthouse just a bad place to be, you know? Like nothing good's happening in the courthouse except maybe somebody gets adopted every now and then. And that's like the only ray of sunshine we would ever see in court. Most of the time, it was just people fighting over stuff or people that, that had broken the law and were trying to deal with what, what justice. And the lawyers would get up there and maybe to break the monotony of it all or whatever, but there's a lot of foul language, a lot of dirty jokes. It seemed like everything was an innuendo. If you thought seventh grade was immature, a lot of these times when I was up in court, they were showing dirty pictures on the phones. And, and here we're supposed to be officers of the court dispensing justice, and it was just this terrible uh, locker room type talk. And uh, 
that was really discouraging. But yet there was a way there that I had a good relationship with those people, but they knew that I didn't, they, they, they didn't show me those pictures more than once. Um, I didn't talk the way they spoke. That was hard, right? Because then at that point, you feel like you're not one of the guys. And, and, and I'm not trying to be the hero of my own story because I've, there's a lot of bad stories on me too, right? But, uh, and I'm sure I compromised and, and, and probably wasn't the, be, the best Christian witness that I could have been. But it was always on my mind that I am, this is not, this is not who I am. Okay, this is not who I am. I'm different. Okay, we got a. This is a crazy morning, isn't it? <clears throat> we just pray for these guys as they're going out to fight the fire. You hear all that chatter on the radio, can't you? That's amazing that that many that we have that many that are sitting in here that had to get up and go. So, um, but anyway, that was just one of those things in life, and maybe you encounter things like that. Maybe it's at the work. Maybe it's at the lunchroom. They're all coming back. They're all walking the aisle. Uh, maybe, it was in, maybe it's in your lunchroom at work. Maybe it's at the teacher's lounge. Uh, you know, no telling where you encounter a similar thing. But if in those contexts someone's asked, are you a Christian? Whenever you were standing around there, would the people that are around you, would they be surprised? Or would they say, well, I guess that because he doesn't ever participate in all the nonsense? You know, because he's, work, he's operating off a different standard. Okay, we're called to be like those two strands of fabric, like the donkey and the ox, like uh, different seeds. We're called to be separated out. And so Paul asks five questions to make his point. Look there at your text there. He says, what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What's the answer? None. What fellowship has Light with darkness. None. Um, think about the deeds of the darkness and the deeds of the light. You know, the deeds of the dark are unthinkable when you're in the light. You know, I mean, wouldn't it be hard to imagine? I mean, I, this is kind of one of those parts in the week where we, where we really are focusing on the light here in church, isn't it? We come here about what's to, to talk about the Lord and His righteousness and the standard to which He's called us and the spirit that He's given us that causes us to desire to walk and obey His commands. And yet we can all think this, this past week, maybe it was an attitude that you had. Maybe it was a thought that you had in your mind. Maybe it was something you did or looked at or saw or listened to. We can all think of the different, maybe it was greed lust, whatever it is. And, and sitting right here, you would not stand up and, and say those things. Sitting in your pew right now, because we got the Word of God open and we're focused on the light, and the deeds of the dark become unthinkable in the light. And yet as we leave this place, as we go and we kind of retreat to the recesses of the darkness of our own heart, those deeds of the darkness seem like, well, that's not too far-fetched. I, 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 I really want to do this, or I want to do this, or this will bring me pleasure. Where right now we're all in agreement. None of the deeds of the darkness will bring us pleasure. They're hollow. They're seeking after things instead of seeking after the one who made all things. Verse 15, what accord has Christ with Belial? Now, Belial is a word that they would use uh, to refer to Satan. Um, sort of like uh, the devil or 
maybe some word we would use, the deluder, whatever you might call him. So we could say it this way, what accord has Christ with the devil? Accord is agreement. Accord is relationship. Accord is togetherness. What kind of togetherness does Jesus have with the devil? Y'all remember that part in the Bible where Jesus and the devil were just sitting there watching a football game together, having a great time, slapping each other on the back? No, there's never, there's never a point in history where Jesus and the devil get along. Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? That's an interesting question. What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? How are we like people who don't believe? Well, we're like in a lot of ways, aren't we? You might be married to someone who doesn't believe. And the Bible says that if you are married and you come to faith, but your partner doesn't, you stay with them if they'll stay with you. Okay, so there's a lot of people that are in relationships like that. Maybe there's people in your family that don't believe, and you get together at Thanksgiving, and you share a meal in common. We share a lot of things in common with unbelievers, so that's an interesting question. What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What's he talking about? He's talking about things that matter. When you start to think about things that ultimately matter to a believer, how much commonality is there with unbelievers? There's not any. There comes a point, and Melissa's made this illustration many times, so I'm stealing it from her. She says, you know, when you have a relationship with an unbeliever, there is a point, if you are a believer, if you're truly a Christian, you get into a relationship with an unbeliever, there's a point where you just hit a stalemate. And you can't go any further with that person because you don't share the, the, the most important things in common. So maybe, you know, it's a relationship, a work relationship, whatever it might be, but when you say, yeah, we've got a lot in common, we're friends, we work together, all those sorts of things, but in the end, those can be really hard friendships because you really don't believe the same things at the core of your being. You don't value the same things at the core of your being. You don't adopt the standards that they adopt at the core of your being. It's a very difficult road to walk, especially if you partner up. And I think the yoking, as I'll explain in a minute, the yoking with an unbeliever, that yoke, I think Paul's referring to a partnership that has some permanency to it. And then he asks one more question here in verse 16. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? What, 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 how, are, how is the temple of God and the temples that would, that would be found in Corinth, how are they similar? Well, the temple of God was about holiness. It was about worshiping the one true holy God. Those temples that were in Corinth, you'd go there and they were the restaurants. They'd go there and make a sacrifice. You'd eat meat. And maybe you would participate in some kind of lewd sexual act. And it would just be no different for those people than ordering dessert to order that. There's not, those temples were nothing alike. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. That's a reality that's achieved by the resurrection. Because He gives us the Holy Spirit, we truly can be His people. 
And he can truly be our God. He says, therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you. I will be a father to you. And you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord God Almighty. (laughs) This is a command. How do we obey it? We understand what it was saying to those Corinthians is you're in a partnership with people that are teaching you false things. You need to separate from them. And I think that that still can be true. Even in the church, you can run across false teachers. In the broader Christian culture, you can run across people that draw a big crowd, but in the end, all they're pointing people to is the satisfaction of physical needs. Or maybe it's esteemed needs or whatever it might be. But they're not pointing them to worship the Lord and serve Him only. The original context, of course, is idolatry. Uh, Examine your life. Is there an area of my life where I've partnered up with someone or something uh, that, 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 or an idea or whatever it could possibly be where my heart is being drawn towards something instead, the, instead of the giver of all good things? Marriage and dating relationships, I bring that up and, and it's not wrong to do that because our relationship, our marriage relationship is the most important relationship that we'll have. Um, it's, it's something that is permanent. It is lifelong. You make a commitment for the rest of your life until one of the partners to the marriage dies. And so we, we have this question of, should I date someone uh, who's not a Christian in the hopes that they'll come to Christ? And I would say that's not a good idea. I heard a sermon, uh, a guy was talking, and he said, you know, actually, I came to Christ because my wife wouldn't date me. He said, she was the most important thing to me, and I wanted to date her so badly. And she said, you're not the most important thing to me. And he said, because of that, uh, he began to investigate the claims of Christ and Christianity. But it's odd. Y'all know what we used to call that when I was a teenager? Do you remember, Gunner? Missionary dating? Is that what you call that? We call that missionary dating. Like, well, you know, somebody really wanted to date this guy or this girl. Say, well, they justify it by like, well, if if I get to know them and I date them, then I'm going to bring them to church and bring them to Christ. What usually happens? It's the other way around, isn't it? That doesn't work. It's odd to think that somebody would have the idea in mind that they could be disobedient to this command and, and do something good for the Lord. Now, there have been instances by by God's grace where that does happen, though. But we don't want to set out to be deliberately disobedient to win people to Christ. We want to obey Him and trust Him that if we'll do His will and obey Him, that He will do His work. What about business relationships? Who we work with and how we work together with people matters to the kingdom of God. What about politics? You know, politically, Christians can be used almost like pawns or, or seen as a, as a voting block in that whole identity politics mess. But I think Christians should look at politics in a different way. We should be shrewd. And, you know, I'm kind of glad to see the, the, the love affair with Trump seems to be dying down. And, and that was a big question for these last several years. Is, is Trump a Christian? Is Trump a Christian? Evangelicals wanted to know that. And people would say, how is, is, is Trump a Christian? But don't just think about it with Donald Trump. Think about it with any politician. If you said, is this candidate a believer? How would you know if they're a believer? And people would say, well, because we care about the same things. What do we care about as Christians? If you could say to me about a political candidate, 
His heart is to see people know Christ and for God to receive all the glory. Well, that's a pretty good heart to have. But if my heart's just smaller government and whatever, whatever we could say, that's not a really good way to gauge it or judge it, even though I'm as conservative as anybody in here. But I'm just telling you that it's very easy for the church to yoke up with the politics or political movement and be influenced by that rather than for us to be salt and light within the political movement. The shrewd manager in the Bible uses the scheme to, to his advantage. Remember, he goes down and writes down all the bills. And I think that's the way we should look at our involvement with government. Should we be involved in government? Yes. Don't be unequally yoked doesn't mean don't have anything to do with the government. We need to be in the government. We need to be exercising our rights, and we need to be a significant Christian influence wherever we are. And we have to maintain that distinction where if someone doesn't have the beliefs that we have, that we don't compromise who we are in upholding the standard of righteousness just because we want political power. That's, that's not a good bargain. And we cannot do that. I mean, when you say unequally yoked, yes, it applies to dating, but it also applies to your work. It also applies to this church. It also has to apply to politics. And is that going to make things pretty messy for a Christian? Yes. You know why? Because you don't fit neatly into any party. It's just the reality. But we want to be shrewd in the way that we understand in the way that we work in politics. We want to be salt. We want to be light. And we need to be able to recognize where the commonality ends. But there's another unequal yoke in our Bible. Don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers, but there's another time that the yoke is mentioned. It's in Matthew chapter 11. Jesus is praying. He says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven. Matthew eleven twenty five. I thank you, Lord, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and to anyone the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, Jesus said, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Listen to this verse. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is another yoke that's mentioned in the Bible. And this would happen when you had an older, mature oxen or ox. And they would bring a younger one up that needed to learn how to pull the plow. And they would put that larger, stronger, older ox in there, and that young one would come in there and put their little head in the yoke. And the larger ox would do the work, and it would teach the other one how to pull and how to plow. That's what the gospel is, really. The gospel is an invitation for you to come to Jesus Christ, and you don't bring much to the table. You're the trainee. <laughs> You're the one who doesn't have the strength and doesn't have the ability. But he has the ability. And what Jesus Christ has done on the cross, he said, I see your greatest need where you can't help yourself. And I'm willing to do the work. I'm willing to do the pulling. I'm willing to go to the cross 
to atone for the righteousness for which it's impossible for you to atone because you're a sinner. And so Jesus invites us to come place our neck inside his yoke, to submit to his leadership, to submit to his lordship in that unequal yoke where forever we'll say, you are the Lord, you are the king, I am the servant. We're commanded not to yoke up with the unbelievers, but you need to yoke up with Jesus because your life depends on it. Have you done that today? That's my appeal to you today. Have you come to Jesus and said, I will place my life inside of you? I will give my heart to you. I will surrender to you as the Lord and Savior of my life because I realize you are who you say you are. You've done what you've said you've done. And what a wonderful promise from our Christ who says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. That idea of the larger one showing the younger one. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. I'll show you how to how to live, and you will find rest for your soul. There's rest only in Jesus. So take your yoke, take his yoke upon you today, and I pray today you can see that as Jesus prayed, that he would reveal that to you, that you might put your faith and trust in Christ today. No one can do that for you. It doesn't happen automatically. You have to bow the knee.